What should we do as parents when our child is scared? This is something that I have faced recently. In fact, I've faced it many times. And I want to share a story with you and weave in five steps that I think we can take that are perhaps counterintuitive to our knee-jerk reactions in order to build resilience in our children. Today, many of the parenting trends go in the opposite direction. They go in the direction of over-empathizing and of weakening our children and of helping them to actually over-identify with their challenges and fears. But here at HiFam, I'd like to take a completely opposite approach. I want to take the approach that we are going to build resilient children. It's that old saying, don't prepare the path for the child, but instead prepare the child for the path. The truth is that whilst we are all trying to manifest the safest, most beautiful and pleasurable and fun and uh, connected lives possible, life has a sharp edge to it, as most of us have discovered and faced. We all go through ups and downs, turmoil and loss. And as much as it might pain us to be aware of it, our children will as well. They are humans living a human experience in a flawed and imperfect world. And so I think that childhood fears are the perfect practice ground. It's low stakes. It's the place where we can start to learn how to acclimate fears, how to digest them, to metabolize them, to move on from them, and to actually grow stronger in the process. So really, really doubling down on that idea that what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. The things I'm afraid of, the things I need to face, those can make me stronger. So let's get into that. This is HiFam. I'm Avital. Recently, my daughter developed a spontaneous fear of dogs. She had not suffered any particular trauma. She hadn't had any bad experiences or read any scary books about dogs or anything like that. Um, But she was suddenly reacting very strongly and kind of running away and hiding behind me and holding my hand tightly whenever we saw a dog, even very friendly, sweet dogs on leashes. My husband and I are not afraid of dogs and we weren't quite sure where this came from. And the knee-jerk reaction that I think I and probably many parents have is to brush away fears like this, right? To say, oh, don't be silly. It's a sweet dog. Don't worry about it. They're fine. And it's certainly true when there's imaginary fears like monsters under the bed. And it's even true when there's some very serious fears like, oh, will you and daddy die someday? Oh, don't be silly. You don't need to think about that, right? Now, brushing away the fears comes from a good place. It comes from the place of us wanting them not to feel those feelings and not to have to face that and not to um, be worried about things they don't need to be worried about, right? Not to suffer needlessly, as it were. But I think it has a counterintuitive and counterproductive result, When we brush away the fears, what we're actually doing is stuffing them, right? We're saying, don't talk about that. Don't feel that. That's wrong. Um, I don't want to contend with that. I don't want to have to answer the question, what happens when me and daddy die? Uh, I, you know, I'm uncomfortable with that. So let's not talk about it. Let's pretend it couldn't happen. And coming back to the dog example, saying, oh, you know, don't be, don't be silly, don't be afraid, these are sweet dogs, it kind of sends the message to the child that your fears are completely unfounded, they're illogical, they're irrational, they make no sense, and I'm not even going to entertain them, which may or may not be true, they may be illogical and irrational, but the truth is that psychologically that does nothing to help the child work through them and come to that conclusion themselves. We actually want them to come to the conclusion that they don't need to worry about this. And they can't come to that conclusion by us simply telling them to 
stop it, right? To stop thinking about it. It's kind of like, don't think about a pink elephant. And now, of course, you are. So instead of brushing away the fears, and this is step number one, is I actually find it a lot more productive and healthy to float the fears, to discuss them and to go into them in depth. Dr. Daniel Siegel talks about this quite a lot. He talks about the fact that when we've been through some kind of trauma, when we have some kind of, you know, hidden shadow of of fear, of, of doubt, of pain within us, we actually need to talk about it ad nauseum. We need to talk about it until we're desensitized to it, until the thoughts no longer hold so much power over us, until they become boring. And so in some ways, you want to become a little bit tedious, don't drive your child crazy, but a little bit tedious about exploring with them and actually investigating what this fear is about. So with my daughter, I started asking her, okay, I see that you have a a fearful reaction, You're, you're screaming, you're running away. What are you afraid of? And then we can start to talk about it. Some might be preposterous, some might be realistic, right? I'm afraid that the dog might chase after me. I'm afraid that the dog might bite me. I'm afraid that the dog is just going to go all sorts, all sorts of wild games and I'm going to feel scared. I'm going to feel scared that it's going to jump on me and knock me over. Uh, I'm worried that it's going to bring me some disgusting toy and I don't want it. I don't want to touch it. I don't, I don't like its smell, <laughs> right? So we could just go into these things and talk about them. Now, I don't stop there. I actually go a layer deeper. So for example, with the dogs, it's really mo- mostly a fear that the dog is going to jump on her or, or lick her or, or bite her. So we talk about that. Okay, what are the chances of that happening? What could she do if it did happen? How can she see signs if a dog is likely to come and start jumping on her? Uh, what would happen if, you know, if the worst came to the worst and God forbid she did get bitten? Then what happens? Do we know anyone who's gotten bitten? And then what did they do? And was it the end of the world or were they okay? Right. We start talking about it and kind of untangling the knot of confusion and of, uh, this fog, right, of something bad might happen. And we talk in very plain terms about the bad things that could happen and what the worst case scenarios could be, what the likelihood of those happening are. And we kind of break it down. And the, and the key to all of these conversations is to having them in a very straightforward, nonchalant manner where we're not spiking our cortisol and getting all worked up and fearful and being like, no, don't even think that. Don't even talk that way. Oh my goodness. Don't even say that. Okay. You know, people do sometimes get bitten by dogs. That could happen. Um, If that did happen, what do you think we could do? What, what, What do you think we would do? Where would we go? What kind of medical treatment would we give you? How long do you think it would take to heal? Uh, Talking about that type of thing. Now, sometimes it's worse than just getting bitten by a dog. Sometimes we have to talk about things that we're really uncomfortable with, like what would happen if I died? Okay. Uh, you know, that's unlikely to happen. Thank goodness I'm healthy and I'm young and I'm strong. But if mommy was to die, here's what would happen, right? Here's what would happen. Yes, it's true. Anyone could get hit by a car. It's true. Anyone could suddenly get ill and collapse and die. These are things that are real and children know that. And so they ask these questions because they know that that might happen. And it's important for us to be brutally honest about the real fears and the unreal fears, the irrational fears. So let's say a monster under the bed, we might say, no, there aren't any monsters under the bed. But our brain does play tricks on us when it's dark and we see shapes and we imagine things or things we saw in a movie come back to us. And and that can be really a really, really frightening. Um, And the imaginary fears are no less real or no less scary on an emotional level than the realistic fears. 
you know, a dog biting you, that's a pretty realistic fear. A bee stinging you. Yeah, most kids do get stung by a bee. Um, a parent dying is, thank goodness, rare, but it happens. We know children who have lost their parents, and this is also something that we need to discuss. So that's really point number one. Don't brush it away. Have the uncomfortable conversation of saying, yeah, you know, I think that's unlikely, but here's what could happen if it if it did, and here's how you would manage it, and you would overcome it, and you would go through that, and people do, and, and there's no reason why you couldn't. Okay. The second thing is that you don't want to over-identify your child with the fear. Do not label them. Do not label them with any kind of challenge that they're fa- facing. Don't label them negatively ever uh, because we identify with the labels that are put on us and we live up to them or down to them and because they become self-fulfilling prophecies and because sometimes we're just getting over something or we're going to move on from it or we're going to adapt or we're going to grow and because someone's labeled us, we, we stay in that box right? So that's why you won't hear me saying about my child, she's scared of dogs. You won't ever hear me saying that. I don't want her to internalize that word as a part of her identity. Because we're living in a day and age where people actually very much identify with their challenges and make that a big part of their identity, make that something that they lead with in introducing themselves in making their decisions in understanding themselves, right? In their feeling world. And it's not a good way of living, in my opinion. You know, we all have our challenges. We all have the things that we have to overcome. We all have our traumas. We all have our various labels that we could be labeling on ourselves. Um, But, and sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes we have to get a diagnosis. Sometimes we need to get treatment. So there's a bit of label work going on, but we don't want to actually describe ourselves or our children in particular with those labels or have them describe themselves that way. So even if my daughter would say, I'm scared of dogs, I would probably kind of gently prompt her to correct herself to say, I'm learning not to be scared of dogs, or I'm getting used to dogs, or I'm sometimes a little bit nervous about dogs, but there are a lot of dogs I like and I'm calm with, right? Trying to make it more specific, depersonalized, and and not permanent, right? Something that isn't pervasive and permanent and personal. That's uh, Martin Seligman's uh, formula for pessimism. We don't want them to think of their identity and their fears with a pessimistic lens, with a lens that this is just part of me. This is just how I am. This is just how I'll always be. I'm just challenged in this way. But rather to say, yeah, I'm an overcomer or I'm not there yet, right? I'm, I'm not yet comfortable with dogs. I will be. I'm not now, but I will be. This is a process. And that kind of, you know, pays respect to the fact that it's a spectrum, you know, going from, you know, deathly phobic of dogs to, a, a, you know, astute dog lover. That's a spectrum. And she's somewhere along there and she's moving forward. And it might, you know, there might be waves. She might sometimes regress and move forward, et cetera. That's fine. But we don't need the label of phobic, for example, right? That would be an identity that then she would adopt and feed into, right? Where she'd start gathering evidence for that identity. Because that is what happens when we label someone, they start to gather evidence for that thing. Am I that thing, right? Even a, even a positive label. Now with a positive label, there can be some downsides, but there can also be some upsides. Research shows that positive labeling actually has more benefits than drawbacks. There are some drawbacks, like if you label someone as, oh, you're so talented, right? Then they might feel 
nervous to lose that label and they might not want to take risks. Um, they might not want to try hard. Even if you say you're so smart, same happens, right? Now they don't want to try the difficult puzzle because they might fail at that puzzle and then they might not be smart anymore, right? So positive labels have their downsides, but calling someone an overcomer, a hard worker, um, someone capable, someone competent, uh, someone who's able to do things, right? Not, not necessarily labels that are accolades, like end results, like you are smart, right? But you're a hard worker or you put in lots of effort. Uh, these are the types of things that actually encourage and when it comes to fears, that's exactly where we want to label them. You're brave, you're courageous, you face your fears, you are resilient, you are capable, you have overcome so much, you're an overcomer, right? You have grit, you have stick to itness, you go out and get it, right? Whatever, whatever kind of label there, telling them that they're strong that they're capable, that is something that is actually really positive. So that's step number two is don't over-identify with the fear. Don't label them. Hey, we'll be right back to the show. But real quick, I need to ask you, do you want to know how I kept my day job, started a side hustle and built my business from scratch while birthing, feeding, raising and schooling my five children at home? Well, there are many things that go into it, but the key that made the most difference by far is that my children play independently for hours at a time. No, they are not unicorn children. There's nothing special about them, although they are special to me. All children are designed to play independently for hours a day. Yeah, even yours. But in our culture, play has been stolen, which is tragic because play is so good for kids and also such a breather for us adults. If your child is clinging, reliant on screens or on you for entertainment, you need to check out my new free masterclass, How to Transform Your Home into a Play-Inducing Haven. In it, I will break down how to get your child playing independently with the play zones that every child needs. Go to reclaimplay.com forward slash haven. Okay, back to the show. The third step that I took here, and this is where it gets a little controversial, I know, is that you should not allow your child, in my opinion, or I have not allowed my child, to avoid their fear. Now, this is where the self-esteem movement and the empathy movement and the feelings movement and gentle parenting and respectful parenting and conscious parenting, many of those may insinuate or say outright that you should protect children from their fears, that you shouldn't have them face their fears. Many of them say that children shouldn't feel stress, shouldn't feel afraid, they shouldn't feel pain. And it's our job to soften everything for them, to soften every blow, to help them to reconstruct our lives in a way that they don't have to deal with things that they don't like, to make sure that they're not uncomfortable. And you see this in extreme cases now, say on college campuses with safe spaces, right? Or with trigger warnings. It's the idea that if something's uncomfortable for you, you shouldn't have to face it. The world should rearrange itself so that you don't ever have to come in contact with that thing. Now, I have a 180 opposite approach. I completely reject this. I think it's terrible for children. And I think it's deeply unfair on them. And I think there's a lot of psychological research um, that is wonderful evidence to this point that actually this is weakening 
um, this is going to increase their anxieties and their fears and their depression and all manner of mental ailments because our brains and our emotions, etc., our psychology works very similar to our immune system in that it needs exposure in order to grow stronger. We need exposure in order to grow stronger. So people used to think, for example, that children shouldn't be exposed to peanuts at early ages um, to avoid allergy. And today we know that the opposite is true, that it's early, gradual, you know, even microdosing exposure um, that actually immunizes them. We know that children must be exposed to some dust, some dirt, some germs, otherwise their immune system will be really, really weak. Now, you don't want to flood a child with, you know, deadly bacteria. Everybody has uh, their threshold of stress that they can handle. But a little bit of stress, a little bit of fear, a little bit of challenge, a little bit of pain, a little bit of discomfort scattered throughout childhood has an immunizing effect. And that's exactly what we want for them. So the idea that we would create spaces where they don't have to face their fears is exactly counter, it's exactly contra, um, it's exactly contraindicated. It's the opposite of what they should be doing in order to grow stronger and be able to handle uh, those discomforts. Now, is there sometimes here and there, you know, uh, a need for an emotionally safe space, a space where people aren't going to judge you and people are going to be kind to you? Sure. I mean, there's a therapeutic aspect to that. And I certainly am trying to create that in my own home and in my own community. Uh, inside the studio, I think it's a very safe space. People can be honest and exposed and vulnerable. And uh, we are very, you know, very powerfully and intentionally creating a culture uh, that is really pleasant uh, and loving and supportive. And I think in that sense, you could call it a safe space. But the idea is not to create a space where you're not exposed to discomfort, to uncomfortable things. Anyway, I think there's a, there's a place for this here and there. Um, but generally throughout childhood, that's not what we want for them. Generally throughout childhood, uh, we need to bring back the get back on the horse type of approach, right? The approach that teaches them to face the fear. And I say that quite explicitly with my children. I say, what do we do with fear? And then they say, face it. And I say, yes. And this is something I learned from Jordan Peterson, who shares that actually it's the voluntary facing of the fear that helps us to acclimate to it and to overcome it. So you can't flood people, right? Psychologists used to do this. Let's say someone was afraid of dogs. They would force them into a room with loads and loads and loads of dogs and say, okay, you'll, you'll acclimatize, you'll desensitize. And if you just stay in there long enough, you won't be afraid of dogs anymore. Now, if they were forced into that position, it didn't work. In fact, it became traumatic and it, ex it, the exposure actually exacerbated their fear of dogs further. However, if they voluntarily and, you know, more gently and gradually uh, in a more low stakes environment, expose themselves to dogs, that was when they were able 
to actually overcome and to desensitize. So the exposure is important and so is the voluntary aspect, which is hard when it comes to children. We can't necessarily always get them to volunteer. However, I want to share with you what I did with my daughter because she did volunteer uh, and it wasn't easy for her and it wasn't her initial gut reaction at all. So we have good friends who have a beautiful, amazing dog who is really gentle and sweet and trained and lovely to be around. And they were traveling and they asked us if we would dog sit. Now, initially, when my daughter heard this, she said, no, right? She started screaming that she doesn't want a dog sit. She doesn't want the dog in her house. She's afraid of dogs. She's too scared. She doesn't want to. Um, It's so unfair. It's not, you know, she's very upset about it and having a bit of a tantrum. And after she calmed down, I said to her something along these lines. I said, listen, I'm not going to force you. If this is an absolute no from your perspective, if you won't be willing to take it on, if you're going to be, you know, crying and screaming and kind of kicking and screaming the whole way, then it's counterproductive and we wouldn't do that. And you need to feel safe in your home. And if, you know, bringing a dog in here is going to be a big deal for you, then we won't do it. But I want to tell you something. There's no reason for you to go through your whole life with this fear of dogs. It's something you can overcome. And the truth is a fear of dogs, it can really kind of set you back and hold you back in certain situations. Like what if you have a really good friend and you want to have a play day at her her house, but she has dogs at home or just walking down the street can become really stressful for you because every time you see a dog, your whole body responds like you need to run away and you don't have to feel that way. You know, there are some things we should be afraid of in this world. There are some things that, you know, it's appropriate to have those responses to, but being afraid of dogs in that way, I think is just going to hold you back. Now, we have this really great opportunity because the dog that's coming over is a sweet, lovely dog. And she's not going to hurt you in any way. She's never bitten anyone. She's calm. She's lovely. She's cute. And what we could do is she could sleep in a different room or even be in a different room most of the day. And as you feel comfortable, slowly, slowly, you'll get used to her. And that will be great for you. You'll feel better. You'll feel stronger. You know, it's not a good feeling to feel afraid of things, right? That makes you feel weak. It's a good feeling to feel strong and brave and capable. And I want you to see that for yourself. Just like in the beginning, you couldn't ride a bike. And then, you know, in the beginning, it was scary and you were worried you would fall and you needed a little bit of help. But within a few hours of trying it, you were riding your bike. And now you can ride, you know, 50 kilometers a day, literally. And that's how it's going to be for you with dogs, just like it was with swimming, just like it was with reading. In the beginning, it's hard because we don't know and we feel afraid, but then we get used to it and then we get really good at it. And if you'll allow me, if you'll trust me, I think bringing this dog into our house for a week will be a wonderful experience for you. And she agreed. And the dog came over and Actually, since then, we've had her two more times and my daughter loves her. And my daughter says about herself, I'm not afraid of dogs anymore. And it was exactly as I just said now, you know, the first few days uh, were, she was a little bit, uh, there was some trepidation, there was some nervousness, she, she screamed a few times, but she got used to it because with voluntary exposure, we face our fears and then we get used to them. And this can be true in many different regards. So you can't necessarily face the fear of war. And I hope you never need to. But that's something you could perhaps practice or face in your mind. Just like I said in point number one, where we don't brush it away. We actually look at it, examine it, decide, okay, what would we do? What would our strategy be? What would our plan be? How would we handle this, right? 
And you can't necessarily face the fears of monsters that don't exist, but you can shine a light under the bed. You can get down and look. You can do that enough times that it becomes boring and you become desensitized. And then you become anti-fragile, right? You become stronger in the face of challenge. Not weaker, but stronger. Because now my daughter knows about herself that it is possible to be afraid of something, but then to voluntarily face it and to overcome it. And she knows that her nervous system will start off by sounding a false alarm that this is an emergency, that this is scary, that this is dangerous. And then she will coach herself. And through that self-coaching, she'll tell herself, actually, this dog is safe. Actually, I can breathe deeply. Yes, blood is pumping around my body to get me ready to fight or flight, but I don't need to do either. And if I stay here long enough, that level of adrenaline and cortisol, etc., are going to settle. I'll feel better. I'll feel calmer. But the dog will still be here. <laughs> the danger will still be here. And yet I will be feeling fine. And that is how I show my body that I am fine in the presence of dogs, that I can face them. Okay, and that is the opposite of a safe space. That is the opposite of the trigger warning culture. It's the culture that actually goes in to the things we're afraid of. We say, yeah, that's uncomfortable. I don't like that. Let me try it again. <laughs> you know what we do with things we're uncomfortable with? You know what we do with things we're not good at? You know what we do with things we're afraid of? We do them again. We face them again. We get back on the horse. We do not avoid them. So no, you're not doing your child any favors when you allow them to avoid their fears. You're not doing them any favors when you give them concessions, when you make it easier, when you say, well, you don't have to, well, you're afraid, well, you're, what you're basically telling them is you're too weak. I don't believe in you. You think you're saying, you know, I think I'm saying when I say to my child, never mind, you don't have to if you're too afraid. I think I'm saying, oh, I love you and I'll protect you and it's okay. But what they're hearing on a deep psychological level is you're incapable. I don't believe in you. You're too weak. And that's a terrible message for them to internalize. So remember, I'm not telling you to push your child into their fears. Okay. I'm not telling you to push them into it. If it's not voluntary, it doesn't work. You can't force this stuff. It will just double the trauma. Instead, you need to walk them through it and say, I do believe in you. And yes, you can. I know it's not too scary for you. I know you're not too timid. And yes, uh, we can do it together. I can hold your hand. We can do it gradually. And I want you to notice uh, that it doesn't need to be all at once. This can take time. And it is a skill like learning to ride a bike or learning to read. So that was step number three. Do not allow them to avoid their fear. The next step, which is similar, is do not overprotect them from their feelings. Okay, what I mean by that is, and you've already heard me touch on this a little bit, is actually walk them through what is happening to them when they're getting triggered, when they're in fight or flight mode, or even when they're insulted or their feelings are hurt. You've got to walk them through the psychology of this so that they can have self-awareness and understanding and they can actually be masters of their own experience. They can be in the driver's seat. Many of us feel at the whim of our emotions. We feel like a leaf in the wind. We're just being slapped around, you know, insulted, hurt, afraid, anxious, depressed, just, just, just kind of reactive to whatever's going on out there in the world. But what we want to build in our children is a sense of resilience, that they have emotional mastery, okay? They have that kind of stoic quality where they're able to regulate themselves, that is a superpower of maturity and it is a superpower of mental health. 
What happens in the trigger warning world and the safe space world where we're constantly avoiding discomfort is what we're actually doing is we're kowtowing to emotional meltdowns. We're saying, oh, you're going to have a tantrum about that? Then we better avoid it. Oh, you're going to get triggered? Then we better avoid it. You're going to get fight or flight mode. You're going to get upset. It's going to you know, re- rehash or remind you of something you don't like or of some something in the past. Then we better avoid it. And through that avoidance, we reinforce it. Through that in- avoidance, we tell the child or the young adult or, or ourselves, oh yeah, that thing really is so dangerous. Oh yeah, you really are too weak to handle that thing. Oh yeah, that thing, you have every right to be mad and furious and outraged and upset and hurt and insulted. And so I should save, the- save you from that, right? It's this kind of damsel in distress narrative. And it keeps us incredibly weak and it keeps us from having real full life experiences because people won't be honest around us, because people will hide things from us, because we always need to be bubble wrapped and protected, uh, because people will walk on eggshells around us. But the truth is life doesn't do eggshells, right? Life doesn't do eggshells. Um, The cancer, the diagnosis, the financial downturn, uh, the breakups, the loss, the grieving, the mourning, the deaths, those things don't walk on exiles around us. Life is confronting. Life will throw curveballs our way. No one, no one gets out of life alive, right? We all face death in the end. We all face the biggest fear of all. And so we need to be able to manage those to contend with those, to face those, to go straight marching into the dragon's lair and, you know, be all armored up and be ready because that's that's life. So what happens is we keep our children super safe and super protected and the safe spaces and the trigger warnings and, and we don't, you know, want them to deal with anything they're uncomfortable with and we hide information that's that they, you know, that we think might hurt them or we avoid their fears or we rearrange the house and the schedule and the schooling and the sleeping and everything just to be exactly to their preferences. And, and you know, I hate to throw this, this argument into the mix of, oh, it won't be like that in the real world. But it's true. It won't, it won't be like that in the real world. And it shouldn't be like that in childhood. The whole point of childhood is to prepare you for life. And part of preparing you for life is to teach you to deal with emotions, to teach you to deal with the fact that, yep, sometimes we feel ashamed and that might be appropriate. Sometimes we feel afraid, and that might be appropriate. And sometimes we feel angry, and that might be appropriate. And it also might not be appropriate. And either way, we need to deal with it. We need to discover what the root cause of these emotions are, what our part was in it, what our responsibility is in it, how we can better metabolize and understand and digest and respond in the future. And for that, we need to understand ourselves. We need to understand our emotional lives, and we need to learn to regulate. So My friends, I have absolute conviction about this. It is our responsibility as parents to teach our children to regulate in the face of discomfort, in the face of fear, in the face of insults, in the face of anything. They need to keep it together. They need to be able to manage themselves. They cannot explode in a tantrum or start crying in a puddle every time something confronting happens because life is confronting. They're going to get broken up with. They might get fired. They might, um, you know, struggle with all sorts of different things. That's fine. That's life we all have. We've all been there. We've all gone through those processes. Rather than, <laughs> rather than completely abdicating our role as parents and saying, no, 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 
no, you should just have a dandy, sweet, you know, unicorns and rainbows life as a child. We should do the opposite. We should help them to contend with the very low stakes, very first world, very, uh, you know, low grade stresses that they might face so that they can see that that is possible and they can build a mental model in their brain of someone who faces fears and overcomes them. So for that, I want to do a little bit of the Daniel Siegel thing, the the Dr. Daniel Siegel thing, where he actually talks about how the brain works. We have to walk our children through what's happening. So we have to say, look, when you're afraid of something, um, your brain tries to protect you. And what it does is it actually shuts down the very high calorie burning prefrontal cortex. And you can point to the front of your forehead where the prefrontal cortex is. This is the place where we think, where we plan, where we weigh up pros and cons, where we judge, um, where we have all of those really important, you know, executive functions up here. Um, but when we are, when we're afraid, like when you see a dog, when you're petrified of that dog, what happens is that that start that part of the brain switches off all the lights, goes offline, doesn't work, and because your brain perceives a threat, and your brain thinks, "Oh no, I might get eaten. I just need to survive now. I can't think about anything. I can't plan anything. I just need to survive." And your amygdala starts firing, and that's that that primal, ancient part of your brain. Um, that is more animalistic, that is more reactive, that is more emotional. And that's going to start flooding your body with all sorts of hormones to prepare you for the fight or to flight, right? To to fight the the dog or to run away from the dog. And it's going to, you could also talk about freeze if you like. But the point is um, that that's why blood is pumping through your body. You hear your heart much louder. Maybe you get flushed. Um, Maybe uh, you kind of stiffen up. And uh, you're you're breathing faster, and it's getting you ready uh, for 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 anything, right? For survival. But because you do have a prefrontal cortex, and because you have me here, your mother, and I'm here to support you and help you, um, we're going to teach your brain that that's a false alarm when it comes to most dogs. I mean, if you see a Rottweiler on the loose, then that's probably appropriate. But most of the dogs in our neighborhood, very friendly dogs on a leash, um, and you don't need to run and you don't need to fight. And here's the interesting thing. And this is, if you've been kind of multitasking, come back to me, because this is a really important part that I wish all parents knew. When I learned this, my brain, my mind was blown. I was just amazed. What happens is, when we have an irrational fear or any fear, whatever, a fear, is that we have those bodily reactions that I just discussed, right? We have uh, a shortening of breath and our heart starts pumping faster, et cetera. And we're very uncomfortable and we feel, oh my God, I'm I'm really afraid. I'm afraid uh, that something bad's going to happen and we can't think straight. And so what we do is we we run away from the situation, right? So I'm afraid of a dog. I'm in the presence of a dog. I run away from the dog. And within a few minutes, my cortisol levels get back to normal. Um, my adrenaline passes. Uh, my prefrontal cortex comes back online, etc., and I start to feel better. And so, what I've just done is I've taught myself that yes, indeed, the dog was very dangerous because when I was next to the dog, I was very stressed, and that when I left the dog. When I was far away from the dog, I felt very calm. And so my embodied experience is that yes, in fact, dogs are dangerous and leaving them is the right thing to do because then you feel better. Now here's the kicker. Had I stayed in the presence of the dog, I would also start to feel better. 
I would have the exact same physiological reaction after a few minutes because we don't stay triggered for all that long. Our body starts to calm down. (laughs) Our hormones start to restabilize. Our brain starts to come back online and then we feel better. But the dog is still there. And so we do not want to avoid the fear. We want to stay with the fear voluntarily and notice that we can calm ourselves down. That is the power of self-regulation. That is the power of choice in this matter, where we're actually training our brain and building new neuronal pathways that say, oh, wait, 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 dog doesn't equal danger. Dog equals safety. Here I am. I stayed and I'm still safe and I feel better. If you always allow your child to avoid that fear, they will never have that experience and it will exacerbate and it will reinforce the fear. It will get bigger and bigger. They'll get more and more evidence, you know, in quotation marks, not real evidence, but they feel like it's evidence that dogs are dangerous. So don't allow them to avoid the fear. But this point that I'm trying to make here is don't protect them from their feelings. The point is it's okay to feel the fear. It will pass. All feelings pass. So I want you to tell your child exactly the mechanics of how it works and tell them that it's like a wave in the ocean. It comes up and then it goes down back into the ocean. And all we have to do is wait. It's a natural process. It will happen. So just stay here for a few moments, breathe, and you're going to feel better. And in a few moments, you're not going to feel that heightened sense that you have to run. You're going to feel calm. Now, if your child starts screaming, no, but I hate dogs. I'm scared. I don't want to. That's okay. It's okay. I know. That's your brain trying to protect you. You can thank it. Thank you for trying to protect me. I know it's okay to feel afraid. I totally get it. I totally get it. But I want you to trust me. I'm here with you and I'm telling you that you're safe. And we're going to show your brain that, right? Your brain needs to see. So let's stay here. Okay, don't be afraid of those feelings. It's okay to feel afraid. And here's the thing. In our family, we feel the fear and we do it anyway. You can feel the fear of the dog and still stroke the dog. You can feel the fear of public speaking and still speak publicly. You can feel the fear of swimming and still learn to swim. These are things you can do. We feel the fear and we still do it. What do we do with fear in our family? We face it. That's right. Because we're strong and we're resilient. We're capable. We're not going to, nothing's going to hold us back. We're going to be held back by fear. No way. No way. We say thank you to the fear. It's just trying to keep us safe. And we evaluate the risk and we go forward. All right. So that was number four. Don't protect them from their feelings. Their feelings are not dangerous. Okay. In today's day and age, people think that discomfort is a dangerous thing, that you're going to die if you're uncomfortable. You're going to die if something scares you, if something insults you, if something disagrees with you. No, you're not. You're going to be absolutely fine. And in fact, you can handle it. You can go stro- stro- grow stronger in the process. That's, that's what we want. Okay. And number five, and this is very similar to the last two points, but I just want to double down on something here, which is don't cater to the fear. Okay, sometimes, sometimes we all do this. Sometimes we kowtow. Sometimes we just can't face the tantrum. We just can't face the meltdown. We just don't don't want to deal with it, right? But in the long term, that's a bad strategy. So once in a while, you're too tired. You you know, you're going to walk the other way than the dog park, the longer way around just to avoid the tantrum. Fine. Once in a while, you're going to cook the special meal because you just want your child to eat that dinner. And, you know, you don't want to ha- deal with all the fusses about the, the broccoli and the salmon that you made. Okay. But mostly you must not kowtow to tantrums. You must not change your... um values, your vision, 
your goals, your lifestyle, your belief system, any of that, because your child is having a tantrum. That is emotional blackmail. And you do not want to teach your child to be good at that. You do not want to encourage them to manipulate or to use screaming as a way of getting what they want. And again, we're seeing that in young people today. We're seeing that in the workplace. We're seeing that, I, I, you know, I see how this has become a pattern when a child is facing challenges or when a college student doesn't like what's going on and they start to start screaming and, and, you know, protesting rather than regulating themselves and dealing with the fact that not everything is always according to your preferences. That's something we really want to teach our children in childhood. So actually, instead, I would orchestrate low grade, you know, gradual, low stakes, voluntary exposure. Okay. What do I mean by that? When I see that my child is, you know, particularly fussy about something, I'll do that thing again and again and again until they're not fussy about it anymore, until they get used to it. Um, When I see that my child uh, is scared of something, I'll do my best for us to do that thing several times more soon, right? Um, And that is counterintuitive, but it's highly productive because as I've said, exposure is what actually offers the immunity. And this goes for many different types of challenges. Uh, If a child says, this is hard for me, then I say, oh, we better try again then. We better do it more. If a child says, I hate doing this, right? Let's say about a chore. Oh, I hate washing the floor. Oh, that's probably a sign that you need to practice more so you get good at it and you don't hate it anymore. Um, If a child is resistant to something. Now, the point is not to make their life miserable. The point is not to constantly do things they dislike. But the point is to instead use childhood as a great time to practice and to face exactly the things that you find difficult, that you find challenging, uh, that you have a hard time with. Um, I have one child who makes a lot of fusses and tantrums about screen time, right? About wanting more, etc. And I've told them explicitly my strategy. I said, look, whenever there's tantrums and whining about screen time, that's a sign that we're not going to do it, right? That's a sign that we need to practice less screen time, not more, right? When you can regulate yourself, when you can be calm about it, when we can avoid the tantrums, that means we can do it. Otherwise, we can't. We need to practice actually managing our emotions. And to me, one of the major like projects that I have as a parent in my children's childhood is practicing emotional regulation, is learning to master ourselves, our own psychology, to become strong and resilient individuals. So for that, to that end, we must never cater to fears. We must never make it you know, so that we are clearing the path for the child. Instead, we need to send them the message, I believe in you. And I'm going to be here by your side, coaching you, helping you, making sure that you have many very, very, you know, small steps, small gradual steps, uh, but many experiences, many exposures, many opportunities to grow and to strengthen and to overcome so that you can see yourself as such a capable individual that you really are. Did you enjoy this episode? If so, I would love it if you could leave a review on iTunes. That is one of the best ways to support this show and share it with someone who you think will find it interesting as well. Use this episode to have a conversation of your own. Did you agree with me? Did you very much disagree with me? Either way is absolutely fine. I think it's so important for us to have these deep debates about our roles as parents and how we can raise resilient children and strengthen families. 
Much love and keep on living that high fam life. I'll see you in the next one.